Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. church. You guys look awesome, most of you, even if I don't like your team, but that's okay. How many of you knew I was a Titans fan? Anybody? A few of you? I get it honestly because I was born in Tennessee, so we'll leave it at that, but I'm glad you guys came. Glad to um, see so many of you this morning at the tailgate um, and a lot of bacon. There was a lot of bacon, so hope you got some. Um, Guys, I'm excited. We're in the middle of this series where we're talking about really, um, if you've noticed, just the core values and even vision for Hope Church, who we are, why we're here. And I'm really grateful to Tom for his, his leadership in this series and just for helping us sort of to, ca- to catch this vision and this excitement about what God is doing. And I don't know about you, but that first week that he talked about that stirring that maybe we're experiencing individually or collectively, it really resonated with me. And so I hope that you continue to kind of catch that spirit of excitement as well as we go through And today we're going to be talking about relationships and community, which I think is such a beautiful topic as someone who's an extrovert. Um, But I love that this series is kind of getting us to ask the questions of why. Why are we here at all? What are we doing? And a lot of times we can get to the point where we hear things so many times that we kind of stop asking why we're doing it or what we're here for. And so this series is making us revisit ask those questions that we think we already have the answers to. So it made me ask this week, why does God place us in community? Why does he put us here in this church, in this community? And is it just so we can have these awesome parties before church or so that, you know, Tom's got enough people for the softball team? Why are we here in community? And if you are someone who likes to dive deep and really um, dig into scripture for yourself, I would encourage you this week to, to look through the Old Testament stories, to look through Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament and, and have that question in mind. What is, God, what is God doing in community? What do we see in the stories in the Old Testament? What do we see him, him creating in the New Testament church? Um, so I would challenge you to go and do that. But today we're going to look a little bit at that. We're going to kind of go back to the Old Testament initially, and we're going to look at why did God put us here in community. So we're going to bounce back to Genesis 1, very beginning of the Bible, and we're going to find that God made mankind, men and women, in his image to be image bearers. And I would say first and foremost, this is an important reminder. Every single person that you encounter today, any day in your life, is an image bearer of God. Okay, we should never, ever forget that. But Genesis 2 tells us that after God made Adam, he made Adam first, and even though God put Adam there in the Garden of Eden with, you know, all these these plants and these animals, God knew that that was not enough for Adam. And so in Genesis 2.18, we see the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, up to this point, everything that God made, he would say, you know, God made, God made the, the waters, and he made the fish, and he saw that it was good. Or God made the land, he made the light, and he saw that it was good. And this is the first time that we're seeing God say something is not good. Something is not right. Something is amiss in creation because man was not made for isolation. We were not made for isolation. And so God created Eve. 
He created this woman to be a, um, a balance to, to Adam, to be um, really the first community they became together. They complement each other, and it was good, right? But then we only have to go as far as Genesis 3 to see that what God intended for flourishing within community also had the potential to lead to harm, right? Because we see that Adam and Eve together, Eve took the fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat, she shared it with Adam, and so sin came into the world and infected everyone after that. And so by the very next chapter, Adam and Eve's son, Cain, kills his brother, Abel, because he gets so jealous. And so the first murder is committed only four chapters into the Bible, but it gets worse because by chapter six in Genesis, Humanity had reached the point that God saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Man, that escalated pretty fast, right? Six chapters in, and if we think that maybe we'd be okay on our own, just doing things our way, this this first six passages of the, the Old Testament would suggest otherwise. If left on our own, in our brokenness, we don't do so well. So we couldn't live alone, but apparently we were having a hard time in community as well. And so God actually took Noah and his family and, you know, the story of the flood and God kind of almost did this reset on humanity and dwindled community back down to this, the family of, of, of Noah. But as we see, things didn't go well after that either, right? As community grew, as society grew more and more, negative things happen so much that by the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, we see that the Israelites, God's people that he had formed for himself, have been enslaved by Egypt. And this is another important thing I think for us to realize is that we can have these individual sins, but we as a society, we as a, as a community can also have these collective sins. And we see that in no, in no other place more starkly than in the sin of slavery, right? And so God, God's people were enslaved and God liberated them out of Egypt, out of the hand of, of Pharaoh. But when he did, we see that the first thing, one of the first things he did for his newly freed people is he gave them commandments, right? God gave them the Ten Commandments. And so I'm not going to read them uh, verse for verse, but if you want to look at these on your own, Exodus 23 through 17 is where we get the Ten Commandments from. So command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Command number two, you shall not make for yourself an image or an idol. Three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Four is to honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Work, you, do your work on six days, but set aside that seventh day for me to rest. Five is honor your father and mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, don't commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. And ten, you shall not covet. So I think it's interesting if we look at these commands. The first four have to do with our relationship with God and kind of the rhythm of our hearts, the rhythm of, of our souls. Um, and honestly, the, the, the whole, all of the commands flow out of our ability to have that relationship with God and to honor and obey him. We talked about this with the Enneagram series a lot. Tom would say we have this, you know, this um, relationship vertically with God, and then we have this horizontal relationship with one another. And so we see both of those, um, group, uh, God and others, addressed in the Ten Commandments. And I think it's interesting that a full 60% of the commandments have to do with our relationship with other people. 
And so you can almost see that God is saying, listen, I designed community for a good thing. I designed this picture of flourishing within community, but you've got to live within my heart and within my rules. Um, Now, one thing I will say, one thing that's hard for me sometimes about the Old Testament and maybe for you too, is that there are so many rules. Oh my goodness, have you read through Leviticus? It's a little ridiculous. And you might start to think like, why are there so many rules? Um, how did we even, like there's some that you're like, how did we even get here? What is, where did this even come from? But I started thinking about it kind of like a parent because I don't know about you, but I think when we have kids, we have kind of this Pinterest-worthy idea of what our lives could be like as a family, right? Anyone else, am I alone there? I'm like, we could just, you just, you feel like you could be this happy family all the time. We could take these fun trips. We could be, I don't know, just very, you know, we could just smile at each other a lot more probably than we do. Um, But man, kids really get in the way of our plans for them, I think. So I find that in order to keep my kids and, you know, sort of to build this relationship or to make this the family feel the way that I want it to, we have to have a lot of rules. And those rules often seem a little ridiculous. Things like, no, that vacuum attachment that I, I don't even know what it's for, I don't even know why we have it, but it's not a weapon, so put it down. And I don't know if, if you've ever found yourself having to just specifically list out things that you should not put in your mouth, right? No, we don't, we don't eat dirt. No, we don't, no, why? No, that never should go in, nope. And I think it's very interesting because Leviticus also has a, a very long list of rules that the Israelites should not eat. So I, I feel like maybe Moses could feel my pain as a parent. And also when he talks about like things you shouldn't covet. You know, as a parent, I understand this. Moses can't just say don't covet. He has to say, no, specifically don't, cover your, don't covet your neighbor's ox. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And again, with my, with my kids, I've been like, you know, if, when I say don't touch your brother's things, I mean don't touch your brother's bed. Don't touch his iPad. Don't touch the sock of his on the floor. Just nothing that belongs to your brother, right? So I think if you can read through the Old Testament a little bit like a, like a parent might be giving rules to their children, you start to understand why there's so many specific rules because as adults even we are really good at finding loopholes and finding more and more creative ways to get around God's law for us and so God gives us these rules and by the way we we are going to recognize pretty early on that these rules could not in and of themselves actually produce the flourishing community that God wanted because Ultimately, without the sacrifice of of Christ, without his righteousness, and without the Spirit's work in our lives, we are unable to fully live in God's heart, right? The the rules alone were not able to accomplish what the Spirit of God can. But these these rules that God gave were, were supposed to be like a blueprint. You can almost view it like an outline that God was tracing for, listen, I have this beautiful picture of a flourishing community, and this is how it starts, and this is what happens in this community, and this is how you begin to love one another. And when you love each other, these are the rules that you're going to follow. But we blew it pretty quickly, right? And we did not listen to God. We did not accept his lordship. And so even though God gave the Israelites this promised land, pretty shortly after that, there was a period of of several hundred years between Moses and when God gave them a a king officially where you just had these kind of random judges that God would raise up in, in different periods. And the Israelites more or less were living in isolation. Sort of the tribes were all um, not working together in isolation again. Um, And after reading how terribly we responded in community, you might think that isolation was a good thing. Maybe that's the solution to this whole problem. 
Um, but if you read the book of Judges, there's a sobering line, Judges 21, 25, that says, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. And the problem with isolation is that when we are in isolation, each of us is our own God making our own plans. And if you, see, if you read the book of Judges, um, particularly the end, there's some pretty appalling things that I should not speak in public. Like, the, the pretty terrible things. And so you can see how far evil can grow in isolation. So that's not the real solution. So eventually we're going to look at why God might, what God might be trying to do in community. But first I want to just point out why isolation is not a good thing. Um, I brought up my volleyball here. I don't know if we have our, our slide up here. Of um, Has anyone seen the, this movie here? Uh, I never actually watched Castaway. I watched like a bit, a bit of it. But um, it, as, again, as an extrovert, it really hurt my heart to, to see him. Um, but I think if you, if you consider the fact that, you know, Tom Hanks was on this island, he was in isolation, if you could just picture, like, Adam. What if Adam were like Tom Hanks and he never, never got his Eve and he was just living in deranged solitude for his whole life? It wouldn't be good, right? Not only, not only if we live in isolation do we miss the goodness of God and others, the image of God and others, the gifts and compliments of God and others, but we also have this distorted view of ourselves we tend to look to our own needs, to our own flourishing, and ignore others. And I think what's worse is we begin to, kind of like Tom Hanks with, with the volleyball, we begin to kind of shape God. We, we're, we're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make God who I want God to be. And if I shape him to who I want to be, you know, add a little eye here, a mouth there, and then we can decide what's best for us. We can decide what we can be, what we want, when we want, how we want, and we lose sight of who God is. We, we don't realize that sin that is growing in our lives. In isolation, even our view of ourselves is distorted. And I think this is important for us to realize. Both our sins and our righteousness are distorted when we live in isolation. We already talked about this a few weeks ago. Ruby did that beautiful dance for us and, and reminded us that when, we are, when we're in isolation, sin seems to kind of grow disproportionate. It, it, the enemy comes in and says in isolation that, um, that we can never be free, that God can never redeem our sin. And so that fear and that shame grows in isolation. But the truth is that our view of our own goodness is distorted when we're in isolation. Psalm 36, 1 through 2 says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All right, because if we make God who we want him to be, then he's this little tiny God and we can manipulate him. So we don't fear him. We don't have this reverence or this awe for him. Verse 2 says, In their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their own sin. In their own eyes. They flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their own sin, and that's what happens in isolation. We grow, we grow numb to our own sin. We are unable to even detect it sometimes, and we aren't able to see when things are harmful. We make these little Wilsons, and all these Wilsons agree with us. And I think in our culture right now, I see that a little bit. We have this, this tendency to say everyone should be able to decide what's good for them and what's best for them. But when that happens, man, again, we go back to the book of Judges and we see when everyone gets to decide what, what's right and what's wrong, things fall apart. We do not flourish as individuals or as a community. But of course, God loved us too much to leave, to leave us or to leave the Israelites on that island of isolation. So eventually, he brought them into community. He gave them a king. And I wish that would fix everything, but it didn't because the kings often did not lead the people well. 
But we're going to skip now to the New Testament because there was a plan and a purpose that God had for community. And I want us to look at that now. Because in the New Testament, um, if you remember last week, Tom, Tom talked a little bit about this great commission where Jesus sent his disciples out, his followers out, and said, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the, the Father and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. And God did not delay in keeping that promise to, to put his spirit with his people. And so in the second, right after, right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the next book is Acts. And in that very next book, we see what is called Pentecost, where the, the believers were all praying together and waiting together for God's spirit. And God suddenly brings his spirit and just the spirit rests on all the people there. And people are, are praying in different languages. And you see this powerful outpouring of the spirit. And I want you to see what happens when the Spirit of God brought his people together. In Acts 4, 32 through 35, we finally get this taste of what God's intent for the flourishing of community really looks like. It says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. One in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who had or owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And so it was distributed to anyone as they had need. That is just, just stop for a minute and think about the picture that this represents, this picture of the body of Christ, of people just saying, okay, no, no, I'm not going to claim anything as my own. I'm going I'm to give it to those who might need it. And you just see that there's this, this sense that God's work was bringing a clear unity of heart and mind for all these people. And can you just imagine if our church began to feel that way, if the church as a whole began to feel a little more that way than fractured and broken and arguing and so again, this is a practical picture of what it means to be the body of, the, of Christ. We say, you know, the hand doesn't just do what's good for the hand. The feet don't just say, I want to go this way because it's good for me. We all work together as a body. And again, there's this analogy a little bit of, of almost like being in a marriage, right? We are the body of Christ and we're all meant to be under the head, which is, which is Christ himself. And the body defers to, all the members defer to one another. We belong to one another. And I think that's uncomfortable. I think for, especially for those of us who fear commitment, it's like, I don't know if I want to belong to other people. Let me just kind of step back here and maybe stay outside a little bit. But God truly has designed all of us to work together for the good of each other. God's work can be powerfully present in all of us. Christ's sacrifice to bring us under his righteousness and the Spirit's unity were able to accomplish what all the laws of Moses were not, the full picture of God's flourishing within community. But again, unfortunately, we're still sinful. Even, even after choosing to follow Christ, the church Um, the church still was broken. And so this is why early on, just kind of like Moses had to give rules to the Israelites, Paul had to give a lot of um, admonishments to the early church. And so we see him giving directions like, please don't take your your brother and sister in Christ to court. You know, the world is watching and and why not rather resolve these things on your own out of love than, than, than take your brother to court. Um, or we see things like Paul will give directions about how to have communion together. And he's like, why is it that some people are sitting here not eating enough and other people are like sitting there and feasting? 
there, this shouldn't be. And so Paul has to, again, give these kind of directions and, and, um, and clarity and rules because we often lose sight of God's, God's heart for us. And so I want to kind of look at, this is one reason why I think it's important for us as a church to keep revisiting what, it, what is God's intent for, com, for community? Why did he put us here? And then to keep kind of surrendering ourselves individually and collectively as a church and saying, God, do we match your heart? Do we match what you want to be doing in and through us as a church? And this is an opportunity, I think, even today, just to, to lay that down and say, God, what do you want to do? Where do we, where have we maybe succumbed to selfishness or um, maybe even just looking at our own needs and not looking at the community around us? And so t- today, I want to just look really quickly as we, as we kind of end the last part of this message. What is, what are some of the things that God wants to do through our community, through this um, church as a whole? And the first thing I would say is that God designed community to reproduce kingdom culture. He designed this church community to reproduce kingdom culture because we find when Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what Jesus preached because he was preaching that a new kingdom, a new reign that was far different from the reign of this world was, was in effect. And so through Jesus, we see that, that now the kingdom of heaven can come and reign on earth. And we, as, as sons and daughters of Christ, can actually live out under the reign of Christ and be the, be the kingdom of heaven on earth right now. And so I believe that God wants to reproduce that kingdom culture that's supposed to look radically different than the world. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I would want to say, just as a side, I know, I know for a lot of us, um, I look right now and there's like this whole, a lot of people are deconstructing or struggling with the church and, and I get that. I think there's some things that maybe the church has done or stood for in the, um, that people are saying, is this really God's heart? Um, but I think, unfortunately, when we get wounded by the church or when we, get, um, when we have so many questions, sometimes we think the solution is just to stop meeting, just to kind of go back to our own and, and kind of do life with God on our own. But I really believe we miss something so critical when we do that. People miss... People miss our gifts, they miss your, your gifts and the, the things that you bring to the body, and you desperately miss what others bring as well. And so when we meet together, one of the things we see is that we are able to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Community forms us and we form community, and that's, it becomes a culture. And that's why I think we're so careful here about what kind of culture we're creating. What, is God, what kind of culture does God want to form through us? Um, and I want, I want you to know this. When we in, in live out God's heart, um, when you choose to follow Christ, you, your story becomes your testimony. Maybe you've heard that word, but your testimony really is, is a picture to others around you of what God is doing in and through you. And your testimony then, your story, is a way to inspire and others who, maybe there's people who come in and they're like, I don't even know what it means to follow Christ. And then they see you living out your, um, your, your calling, your passion, um, your gifting, and they say, oh my goodness, I want to do that too. I want to have a story like that too. Um, maybe there's, there's people who come in and say, I don't even know how to pray. I've never had a conversation with God in my life. Maybe they come to a prayer night. Maybe they go to a life group and they begin to hear other people praying. They begin to see the power of prayer at work and they say, oh my goodness, okay, now I understand. And they begin to emulate that. Or again, maybe, maybe it's, um, it's living radically generously or, or changing your life or giving something up and the world, people come in and say, 
why would you do that? Why would you give something up for others without getting anything in return? Um, many of you know that my husband and I have done foster care um, and adoption, but maybe what you don't know is that years and years ago, there was a family in our church that had fostered, and before I met them, I did not know about foster care adoption. And I remember that, that couple sat down with me and my husband. They invited others in the church at the time, and they said, let me, you want to come? We'll tell you all there is to know about foster care. And they let us ask all these really, really um, like personal questions. And if it was not for them, we never would have started that process at all. And so they are the catalyst for this journey of hope that I believe that God has been, has been writing in my life since then. And I want, I, my prayer is that that becomes something, you know, our own story points others to Christ as well. Um, but I just want you to know that that is the power of sharing your story, of allowing others to come in your life and watch what God is doing in you. But community is not just about leading others to love and good deeds. That is part of it. But God also designed community to reveal and heal sin. He designed community to reveal and heal sin. Okay, because again, when we are in community, you're gonna have those people that come up to you and kind of, and kind of check in on you, that they, that they challenge you. I recently, this last week, I had, um, like on the hottest week of the year, I feel like, we, I had the, the people come and, and clean our chimney. And I feel like that's a little ironic, but when, I, when the chimney guy came, he noticed that I had thrown like this random stuff in our fireplace, like you know, a piece of a chair that was broken and like this old whatever. And he looked at me and he's like, your fireplace is not an incinerator. You can't burn that kind of stuff. Um, and I was so embarrassed because I was like, oh, I, well, okay. But, but I was, it was probably good that he saw it because he's like, if you burn this kind of stuff, eventually you run the risk of having a house fire. Like, do not do that. And I think what's important for us to know as a church body is, um, you know, it, it is not our job to run around just like judging everyone and, and bringing condemnation. But when you are in relationship with other people, when you have earned the right to speak into someone's life through the, through the walking with them, and you see something in their life and you say, you know what? That's going, to start a, that's going to start a fire in your heart. That's going to start a, an, a house fire in your soul. It is, going to, it is going to burn up something in a negative way in your life, and I want to save you from that. And so God may give you a, a time where he says, you need to speak into someone's life. You need to help, help to show them and challenge them that there is a, a better way for their life. And so we can do that gently, we can do that lovingly, but God does call us to, to show one another um, a better way to live and to, and to walk people through. And again, to say, you know what, you may be struggling with this and I'm gonna be there with you whether you screw up or not. I'm always gonna be here and I'm always gonna love you. But God calls us as a church to help walk with people. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Again, this is not about shame or condemnation. It is about healing and freedom because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I also believe that when God puts us in community, it is a refining process because we are so aware of our own selfishness. Like when I got married and had kids, I think that was one of the one of those biggest eye-opener moments for me of just how selfish I was. Uh, because the longer you live in a close community, the more selfishness comes out, right? But God then uses that to, to bring us together and to refine one another, and, and he teaches us and shows us what it means to deeply love and care for people, even when we disagree, even when we may not always like each other even, right? And the church is a place where we get to practice that and live that out and be different. And as we do that, as, we, as God perpetuates a kingdom culture, as he, as he reveals and heals sin in us and, and causes us to have unity in his spirit, Finally, we find that God designed community to bring glory to himself. 
God designed us, church, to bring glory to himself. And I think there's a mystery about this that I don't fully understand, but there is a way that we collectively glorify and worship God that is just so powerful and incredible. And Romans 15, 5 through 7 talks about this. It says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other as Christ Jesus had. Let's just stop right there. God is saying that he, through his spirit in us, can give us the same attitude towards each other as Jesus had when he laid down his life for all of us. And that we would become people who would lay down our lives for each other. Verse 6 says, So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. I just think that is this beautiful, beautiful vision. And if nothing else we take away today, that I want us to know that God brings us together as a larger church, as a life group, as, these, as, as two or three friends gathering in his name to bring glory and praise to him. He is delighted, he is pleased when we become together as the body of Christ and unity and we, we worship him together, we, we honor him together. We do this in little ways through even collective worship here at church and I love to just listen to all the voices singing out and I think how God must, must feel when that, that collective praise just rises up to him. And we do this also through, through praying together and again, Monday nights, um, I, I love going to those groups sometimes and just feeling um, connected to others in this unity of prayer specifically um, on behalf of other people, on behalf of the church, on behalf of the world. I think that honors God. Listen, I don't know exactly what God is doing here in this season at Hope or in your life, but I believe that God is on the move and I believe that God wants to bring unity again to his people. He does not want us fractured. He does not want us biting at each other and arguing and broken. I think God wants us to see that there is this incredible picture that he has designed for us when we live as he called us to in his community. And so my, my challenge today would be, you know, we've already talked about life groups, but I'm telling you, join a life group because it is in a place like that. It is a safe space where you can come and you can just be honest about who you are and where your journey is. And if you even, even if you don't know if you believe in God or not, this, this, this group will be a people that you can talk to, that will challenge you, that will pray with you. Um, and I just, I just know that that is something that we all so desperately need and you will not regret it. I would also say, again, that shameless plug for the Andy Reese event. If you are, are sitting here like, I don't know what it means that I have a gift from God and that it's supposed to serve the, the church, fantastic. This is a great time for you then because you can come and you can learn and you can find out. Maybe even I, I thought about... Um, Maybe bring your teen. Maybe have, maybe have it be something where, um, where you're, you're raising up the next generation to be aware of their identity in Christ and how their gifts and, and your gifts and all of our gifts fit together as a body. Um, so I would encourage you to do that. And I just feel uh, that I would love to invite actually Sherry Bertolini up here as we close out. Um, I feel strongly that I just want God to pray or to pray for unity over, over us, to pray for God's spirit to just radically move in us, um, to be reminded that we, we don't change, we don't, we don't become the radical community of Christ on our own or by ourselves. Um, so I just, wherever God takes you, Sherry, thank you for praying for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you said at the very beginning that it was not good for us to be alone man should not be alone. 
Father, I thank you that you have designed us for being together. You designed us to form families, to form tribes, to form communities. You actually designed us to connect with one another, to be gifted in one way and then another person in another way. And you put the two of them together and it makes this amazing thing that never would have existed with just one of them. Father, I ask that you would bless us with courage. Courage to come out of places where we may have hidden, places where we may have held back and just said, no, I just, I don't need a life group. I don't, I don't need to reach out to anybody. We're, we're good. I'm good. It's okay. And yet, we suffer with our own pain. We suffer with our own fear. And we're not getting help. We're not growing. Lord, help us come to that point where we can step out a little further, a little closer. Help us take that small step. You tell us in your word to not despise small beginnings. Lord, I ask that you would give us the courage for that transparency, for sharing the needs that we have, sharing the fears that we have, and beginning to build trust in some other people, whether it's one person over coffee or starting with a life group or just speaking with another family saying, hey, our kids seem to be having fun together. Let's get together some afternoon and do a thing. It, it, just small things. But Father, we need each other. You tell us that we need each other. And I sure know that it's easy to hide, but man, it gets weird when you hide for a long time. Oh, Father, help us. Help us come together as a church family, not a church audience, a family. Father, I ask that you'd help us connect, help us get over ourselves, help us move past the fears that we have about being perceived as ridiculous or stupid or, yeah, they don't seem to have much going on, do they? Father, help us quit judging ourselves before we even make the jump or the leap. Help us, Father. We need that help. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us the strength, the courage, and even the idea for the first step, for what that next step needs to be, for us to begin reaching across the aisle, so to speak, to others who look like us, who look like, man, they could be, they could be somebody I might connect with. It's scary. <laughs> it is. It's a risk. But Lord, this is our this this is our church. You're here. You're with us. You're behind this. You designed it. We don't need to be afraid. This can only get better. This can only get better. Help us, Father, to do that. And I ask that you would just pour out your spirit on everyone here, every household who's watching online, every individual heart. Just place that quiet trust in them. 